0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Good evening, everybody. Um, I came here to tell you the story of an incredible journey of spacecraft in outer space, 10 years chasing a comet. I thought it would be very impressive and exciting for this audience. Then I did a trip from Heathrow to central London this afternoon to get here. <laughs> and I I think uh, it's, it's unbeatable, the adventure there. But, uh, okay, let's see. Probably you are used to this type of adventures. Um, uh, Rosetta. Um, Rosetta is a cometary mission, so we go and, and uh, our objective is to learn more about comets. And comets, if you think about it, in, among the celestial objects are those that, apart from the sun and the moon, are more connected to us, connected to the history of Earth, connected to the history of mankind as well. Uh, They've, uh, of course, uh, always attracted the imagination in the past. uh, They've been uh, uh, treated as uh, messengers of uh, bad luck, sometimes of good news. Um, They've always been feared, uh, and also for good reasons. Um, They've uh, comets and asteroids, which are uh, sort of... uh, uh, typical ob- small objects in the solar system have hit the earth in uh, uh, many occasions during the history and will hit it again um, there are some examples here of craters that are still visible i mean when they when they hit the earth and they create one of these craters the the damage can be uh, enormous so it, 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 there are interests in uh, in uh, looking at comets in learning about them not only to find out what these objects are, but also maybe to find out what we can do, um, how we can treat them in the future in case they they present a threat to the Earth. And comets have always looked so beautifully. This is hale Bob. It's one of the the few comets that I experienced in my life. In in fact, I think the the first comet I saw myself with naked eye was uh, when I was 35 years old. And I think hale Bob came the year later. I, I was so excited about seeing a comet for the first time in my life, and I took my little children to the roof to observe it. And one year later, hale Bob came, and this was much more impressive than the previous one. I think the previous one was Hyakutake. It was a less, uh, less impressive comet to see from, uh, from Earth. And, uh, and I told the children, let's go and observe a comet. And they said, another comet. So for them, it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> obvious. Comets come every year. For me, I mean, they, 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 I had to wait 35 years to see one. But this was really fantastic. And that's the type of things you see in the sky, even with naked eye. Uh, what are they? Uh, I'm, uh, okay, I have, a, I have a scientific background. I'm a physicist, but I never dealt with planetary science. So the... The subject of my talk is more on the operations, which is my job. Uh, but let me tell you just a couple of things about these comets. The, they are supposed to be an enormous amount of objects, uh, uh, small objects, which are the, the remnants of the creation of the solar system. Uh, the solar system created from a uh, collapsing uh, uh, gas and dust cloud formed the Sun then formed the planets. And then all the little parts that remain are still around somewhere. And in fact, there is a hypothetical, hypothetical in the sense that it's never been observed, but uh, by calculating the orbits of the long uh, long period comet, uh, a scientist called Oort um, uh, hypothesized the presence of a huge cloud of these objects, uh, huge in the sense that it goes to interstellar distances. Yeah, we're talking about... Uh, uh, 100,000 or even more uh, AUs, and uh, the, um, these objects occasionally get uh, perturbed by, by even by a stellar passage. They fall towards the center of the solar system where the, the Sun is and attracts them. Uh, we can't reach these objects. We can fly by them, and we've done it in the past, but we do not have enough energy to reach them with our rockets, with our spacecraft, to reach them and stay there. And Rosetta, the main objective of Rosetta is really the rendezvous with a comet, which has never been done before. So we had to select a family of comets that are closer to the solar system. And, uh, and uh, so they are, in terms of orbital energy, they are more reachable. These comets uh, come from a much smaller region that you see on the top there is what is called the Kuiper Belt. And uh, this is at distances of 50, 100 AUs, uh, astronomical units, so one astronomical unit is 150 million kilometers, so it's not that close, but it's around the orbit of Pluto. And these orbits as well occasionally get perturbed by the planets, fall towards the the solar system, they get trapped between the Sun and Jupiter, and uh, so they become what is called the short-period comets, Jupiter-family comets, and they are in orbits which are not too far away from the sun and therefore uh, reachable in terms of distance but also in terms of energy uh, for a for a man made uh, spacecraft um, i mentioned flybys uh, there's a f- video here of uh, uh, one of the first flybys this was the halley comet uh, comes back every 76 years i think and this was a flyby of this little probe giotto you see um, the the nucleus there was observed for the first time. Nobody knew at that time how a nucleus would look like and in fact, just to show how really uh, pioneering this mission was, the camera was programmed to look for a bright spot because everybody at that time looked, thought the comet nuclear would be very bright, very, very, well, like in the, the famous dirty snowballs. Um, in fact, they are extremely dark. So Giotto ended up observing the gas jets, where actually the, the, all the gas and the, and the dust are, are ejected from the surface when it's heated by the sun. But, OK, in the flyby, it observed also the nuclear, and uh, the, um, uh, what we learned from that mission was, of course, a lot. Uh, but this was a flyby, so you just wait for this comet to come in, you launch your spacecraft, you fly by, you stay in the proximity for a couple of hours, you have a relative velocity of... Uh, uh, in this case, I think it was 60 kilometers per second, so it's a very, very quick visit. Um, there were more. Uh, this is uh, Comet Borelli, uh, visited by Deep Space One, which was an American spacecraft in 2001. Uh, Comet Wild, 81P Wild, visited by Stardust. In fact, Stardust even collected some particles during the flyby at high velocity um, and brought them back to Earth. Um, there was an inc- interesting flyby of uh, comet uh, 9P Temple by deep impact. In fact, the, the flying by spacecraft released a projectile, released a, another object, about a 500 uh, kilo uh, object that was thrown in the direction of the surface and uh, then observed the, the impact that you see here. So this is not a, a normal natural ejection of gas and, uh, and dust, but it was caused by the by the explosion of this, uh, this object hitting the, hitting the surface at, I think, it was also the order of uh, 10 or 15 kilometers per second. So this was um, another interesting exercise, 2005. But again, the observation lasted minutes to hours. Uh, the, another very interesting flyby here of uh, Comet 103P Hartley by Epoxy, which was actually the reflight of Deep Impact. Um, now, from all these pictures, this is an animation of uh, what a comet nucleus should look like. Hopefully not that, that active, because <laughs> I'll tell you later what we want to do with it. But, uh, in principle, it's this very, very dark uh, thing that rotates, and uh, when it's ex- the surface is exposed to the sun, and it's close enough to the sun, it starts emitting uh, gas and dust. And, uh, Well, we... I will tell you towards the end of this presentation what we want to do with this thing and just remember this animation. But as I said, hopefully it's not that dramatic what we're going to find out. Um, So Rosetta... Rosetta wants to get to the comet, rendezvous with it. It means reaching exactly the same orbital uh, energy of the comet, staying in the proximity for about one and a half year. And uh, to do this, we had to travel a very long time, and I will explain you how the trip uh, went. The spacecraft has uh, uh, extremely large solar panels because we wanted to fly with uh, solar electrical power, not uh, with uh, um, radioisotope generators. And this was the first spacecraft that went to such distances from the sun. We've reached about... uh, uh, 5.3 5.3 AU from the Sun is uh, 800 million kilometers, roughly, maybe a bit more. Um, and we had to have these enormous solar arrays. These, these uh, panels are 64 square meters. It's the largest we could mount on the spacecraft. And uh, at the Earth's distance from the Sun, they produce 8 kilowatts. When we were out there, they were below 600 watts, just because of the distance. The Sun out there is little dot there is not uh, um, extremely bright and extremely generous with energy. It has also a big antenna, you see there, which uh, um, is a 2.2 meter antenna, which we need because we also reached enormous distances from the Earth of the order of 1 billion kilometers. And uh, you can imagine the signal, the radio signal traveling all that distance. We had to use as big as possible antenna to concentrate it and, uh, and made it available to our ground stations. So, once, once we get to the comet, we will want to uh, orbit it. And I'll, I'll tell you how we're going to do that. We're almost there. Uh, Rosetta, again, as uh, Londoners, you're familiar with the Rosetta Stone. The name comes from the Rosetta Stone. It's not a coincidence. The idea is that, like the Rosetta Stone, and in fact, uh, the other parts which inscriptions in the Philae Temple uh, in Egypt, like these things were the key to decipher the hieroglyphics, Uh, Rosetta will be a mission, the key to decipher the comets and the history of the solar system in that sense. So it's a symbolic name, but also a very nice one. Uh, For an Italian, it's a a very cute uh, female uh, female name, and uh, it's... uh, establishes a strange relationship with the spacecraft. (laughs) Um, Now, this is our target, uh, Comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko, Bit difficult to to pronounce and remember, in in almost 20 years I now managed to do that. Um, It's the name of uh, two um, astronomers that uh, discovered it, I think, in the late 60s. And this is a comet that is not very spectacular, Don't expect to see it bright in the sky like Hale-Bopp. In fact, it's very difficult to detect because it's very small. Um, But it's a reachable comet. Another story about Rosetta is that our original target was a different comet of the same family called VIRTANEN. We were supposed to launch in 2003 in January and just four weeks before the launch there was an Ariane 5 uh, failure and the investigation concluded that it was not safe enough to launch Rosetta, so just a few days before the launch, we called it off. We were all ready; the spacecraft was ready, it was on almost on the launch pad. We had to call off this, the the mission, but this meant that we lost the rendezvous with that with that comet. We had to find a new one. This was very very difficult moments, uh, but people worked uh, extremely hard. Uh, at that time, we we selected a few candidates. We had four or five in the beginning. We discarded them all. Uh, when once you design the spacecraft. For a, for a certain comet, certain size, certain orbit, uh, then you cannot change very much. You have to find a, a, a comet with a similar size, with a similar orbit. And eventually we were lucky. We found Churyumov-Gerasimenko that uh, uh, allowed us to start about one year later. We started in March uh, 2004 and to reach, to reach our, our target two years later. The trip was slightly longer. Um, this is a model, it's a pretty old model, and I, I bet our astronomers now there are, we are very close to it, are uh, actively working on uh, new, new models. And very soon, in a few weeks, uh, these, the accuracy of these models will will uh, increase exponentially. This is the model of, uh, of the comet made in 2003, um, an object which is of the well, of a diameter of about four or five kilometers. So you, you can imagine it as the Mont Blanc and uh, flying in space. Very very tiny thing to, to meet and rendezvous at a distance of many, several hundreds of millions of kilometers. By the way, these models are done just with observations from ground where you just l- see a little dot, and observing the uh, variation of the luminosity, uh, the, the astronomers could determine also very well the period of rotation and OK, they have models for the shape. And the period of rotation now is pretty accurately known. is about 12.3 hours. And uh, also the direction of the rotation axis is known. The spacecraft, you saw a drawing before. This is a, a test model that was built before the spacecraft was built. And um, the solar rays are not seen here. Of course, they would uh, extend on this side. You see the folded uh, big antenna. And as I mentioned, 64 square meters solar arrays with a 32 meter wingspan. It's about 300, uh, three tons of weight at launch, but more than half of it was uh, fuel. And we are consuming it. I will explain to you, uh, we are now in the phase where we are getting rid of all, all, all the fuel now to get to the final orbit. And it's about two times two meter and three meter high. It's not a small spacecraft. Here you see it fully dressed in a thermal vacuum chamber. And uh, what is interesting of this view is that you see the back side. This is the side that we never expose to the sun. The sun, uh, well, can be a little bit on these sides, but normally shines on the other side or on the top. On the top, so on this side here, looking in that direction, you have the scientific instruments. And on the back, you have this little box there, which is about a cubic meter, and that's our lander feeling also got the name from the Philae Temple linked to the Rosetta Stone. You will see more about it later. So, a couple of drawings. The payload, as I said, is on that platform on the top, and uh, and the lander is this thing here on the back. So that's the lander, this is the antenna, this is the sunny side, and uh, that's the observation. So when we fly, we will point, when we get to the comet, we will point that direction to the comet where all our instruments are, or most of them. And we have instruments, I'm not going to go in detail here, but we have instruments for remote sensing, so for taking pictures basically or measurements from from far away in uh, ultraviolet, uh, in uh, of course uh, um, visual uh, uh, optical imaging, microwave and uh, in infrared. Um, we have ob- uh, instruments that uh, can analyse the gas and the dust, uh, which... Uh, the comet throws at us. So we will fly into this cloud of gas and dust, hopefully not too thick and not too dynamic. Um, And do a lot of things with that. We have uh, even a a radio-sounding experiment, uh, taking the advantage of the fact that the lander will land on the surface and the orbiter will stay around it. We can get radio waves across the, the nucleus and sort of do a tomography of the nucleus by sending waves in one direction and receiving them on the other side and vice versa. So that's the concert uh, kernel tomography instrument. And uh, other um, analyzes of uh, the environment, including plasma environment, so also ionized particles, and also radio science investigation. So measuring the signal that Rosetta sends to Earth, you can very, very accurately measure the the perturbation to the orbit caused by the by the comet. Of course, we need this for navigation, but it's also useful uh, from a scientific point of view. You can learn a lot about the, uh, for example, the gravity of the of the nucleus. The lander Philae, which is here in a picture shown on the surface of the comet, has also a large number of uh, of instruments. Um, you have to imagine that. Uh, the instruments we carry on Rosetta, on the orbiter, uh, will work for one and a half year, will observe the, the life of this comet uh, when it gets closer to the, to the solar system. The comet changes a lot because it gets more active, and, uh, and they do the bulk of the scientific uh, uh, revolution that Rosetta will initiate in the cometary science and solar system science. Uh, but if we manage to get the lander on the surface, and this thing is supposed to, to survive at least 60 hours, but maybe longer, because it has batteries that will operate it, but then it has also solar arrays. Um, this will also be the, the cherry on the cake, basically. On top of all these measurements of the surroundings, we will have also surface in situ measurements and, uh, and science. This will be fantastic. Um, now I talked about the, the space segment, but there's also a thing called the ground segment, and that's basically where uh, we are working. This is the control center, the mission operations center in uh, in ISOC in Germany, where I'm located. Uh, we have uh, a science ground segment. Vini, sorry, it's bottom, yeah. bottom, right. Never mind. <laughs> uh, in Spain, they deal with the uh, scientific operations, and we have a number of large ground stations uh, when Rosetta started we had uh, uh, practically only two uh, the ESA New Norcia ground station it's a 35 meter antenna in uh, in Australia we had one in uh, Cebreros in Spain so we made a large use of the deep space network of NASA uh, they cooperate with us we are carrying a couple two instruments from NASA and in uh, in return, they give us a lot of uh, ground station support, which is useful also in these days. They are, they are helping us. They have also 70-meter antenna, and uh, they are very useful in case of emergency. In the meantime, they, we built a third one. So we have now, from ESA point of view, on that left column, we have a full celestial sphere coverage of deep space antenna, 35-meter. One in Australia, one in Argentina, one in Spain. Plus the locations in uh, NASA, we have a good, good uh, possibility to keep... Keep an eye on our our spacecraft. Um, Now, the travel plan. You see here a a video of the launch, which was, as I said, on the 2nd of March uh, 2004. Um, We launched with Ariane 5 at night, as you can see, and uh, we plan to arrive very soon, on the 6th of August 2014, which is only in a few weeks from now, we will be there. Um, I'll explain you, Later, what happens in the coming weeks? But uh, it was a very, very long trip, more than ten years, and now we're almost at the at the target. I just can't believe it. Uh, we have basically traveled. I mean, the, what the travel distance is is always a matter of definition. But um, about six and a half billion kilometers we have traveled. We went five times around the solar system. I will uh, give you all the details on this in a in a moment. In order to reach the right velocity, and to reach, eventually, the orbit of the comet. Um, And we plan to stay there, at least until the end of 2015. Hopefully later as well. Um, Now, I mentioned uh, we need a long time, we need to reach the energy of the comet uh, orbit. The problem is that we didn't even have enough energy with our rocket. This is quite normal in interplanetary flight, that the rocket puts you, but very powerful rockets give you the right acceleration to go on your trip on a solar heliocentric orbit. Uh, but still, to reach your, your, uh, your target, you need to have some help. And the help, so we started with the velocity, which is the velocity of the Earth around the sun, 30 kilometers per second. I mean, it's not uh, uh, very slow, it's not bad. We are at 150 million kilometers from the sun. And the comet eventually, when the comet is at pericenter, so at at the closest distance from the sun, will be at 186 million kilometers with a velocity of 33 kilometers per second. We have to get there somehow. And uh, what we did, we, like, again, is not a new technique, it's a technique that is extensively used in interplanetary flight. You do planet flybys. Basically, you come with your trajectory, close to a planet, you just fly by the planet. Uh, with Rosetta we did it three times with the Earth. Um, you have a certain velocity, incoming velocity. If you are sitting on the planet, the planet will just change the direction of your, of your velocity. So from a reference frame of the planet you have not gained any energy. You just changed the direction of the, of the velocity. But compared to the sun, and that's what we are interested in, you have to remember that the Earth has also a velocity rel- related to the sun. So if you just add up these vectors, I'm very proud of this animation. <laughs> 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 uh, you have an initial velocity like this compared uh, relative to the sun. The final one is this. It means, you see, the length of this vector is larger. You have gained energy. And that's what we call a delta V. You have gained energy. And uh, where did you get this energy from if you... If you have studied physics, you know that it doesn't come for free. You have actually slowed down the Earth in principle. Um, that we've done three times. I hope you forgive us. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as uh, you can imagine the, the relation in mass between Rosetta and, uh, and the Earth makes uh, this, uh, this transfer of energy in terms of Earth uh, um, orbital energy very tiny. So nobody will notice it. Uh, we hope, at least. So that's the, the um, principle of um, planet flybys. And, uh, OK, this is a bit more difficult to explain, but I have a better animation. This is our trajectory all the way it was designed. Uh, so we start from that. We have uh, the orbit, which is the blue, is the orbit of the Earth. And that's basically where we are at launch. And uh, the, ob- the target orbit is this big ellipse. In the center, you see the sun. And that's the orbit of the comet. And so first what we did, um, after launch we were basically at the same velocity as the Earth. Um, We did the first Earth swim by or fly by, um, gravity assist sometimes it's called. And uh, we went, you see, on a slightly larger orbit and uh, we increased our heliocentric velocity by almost 4 kilometers per second, thanks to this help that the Earth gave us. Um, then, we had to... we used... this was a trick. We used Mars, the Mars orbit is the red one, to correct the trajectory, so we flew by Mars, but this was not to gain energy, it was just to deflect the trajectory back to Earth and get another, another uh, kick from the Earth. That's what we did. Uh, it was a couple of years later, I think 2007, um, we reached 35.1 kilometers per second. And then we did a third one again. Two years, exactly two years later, we met the Earth in the same place, more or less. We reached 38.7 kilometers per second. This time we were fast enough to go, now it's not very visible, but it's this uh, purple, uh, bit pale um, trajectory that eventually intersects the trajectory of the comet. And uh, we had to correct in these two points we corrected, using our onboard thrusters, our trajectory. First, to inject us on the, f- on the long uh, arc down here. This was done in 2011. And now, we are doing the final corrections. Exactly in these days, every two weeks, we are doing a braking manoeuvre, because we are now too fast. Uh, we, are, we are approaching the comet um, with, uh, today, a relative velocity of about two to 300 metres per second. And uh, so we have still a few more manoeuvres to do. The next one will be next Wednesday. So we use the rockets to slow down the relative velocity to the comet. And then we will have the same velocity as the comet nuclear around the sun, which means relatively we are are there. Um, Now, look at the trip. Uh, Not very visible, but you see the white line is Rosetta flying. Now it's coming back to Earth and does a nice flyby, you see. Now it has a higher velocity, so it can go at higher distance from the Sun. Uh, Let's see what happens next. It should meet Mars and be deflected back, yeah? This is Venus, but you see, uh, where is it? Okay, now, you see, it gets deflected by Mars. It was here, deflected by Mars. It, It meets again the Earth and goes on a larger orbit. And then it comes back for a third time. By the way, the comet in the meantime is coming. Oh, it stopped. Anyway, <laughs> it comes back for the third time, again meets the Earth in the same place, and then gets the final, the final uh, kick. Sorry about this. Uh, so uh, just a few pictures about these uh, exciting flybys. This, uh, this is technical drawings. Don't look at them, but just to show... Uh, how we we flew by towards the Earth, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically almost equatorial, the first one, and uh, in the sunshine, so we could take nice pictures. This was a moonrise, this was the Earth from a distance of 200,000 km, 250,000 km. Then, in February 2007, as I said, we flew by Mars. This was quite exciting for two reasons. First of all, it was a flyby at 250 kilometers altitude, 250, very, very close. The atmosphere of Mars is not that high. On the Earth, we would have a dramatic drag, and probably we would never do it so close. But uh, never mind, uh, the the navigation there was quite critical. And uh, on top of that, we had to fly in the, in the shadow on Mars. And this was uh, also an effect of the change of the, t- or the comet uh, uh, target. The, the spacecraft was designed to fly always in the sun. The original trajectory to VIRTANEN, the old uh, comet I explained before, was always in the sun. There was no eclipse phase, that's what we call it. So a k- phase in which somehow you get in the shadow of a planet. Um, but in the new trajectory, we had to survive 24 minutes in the dark. And we had to reprogram the full spacecraft for this. It was not designed for that. So the spacecraft was designed to be very worried when uh, the sun disappears. So a lot of automatism on board. that says, oh, my God, the sun is gone. We have to do something here. And uh, the, we, had to, we had to basically uh, give it a lot of uh, tranquilizers, uh, disable, <laughs> disable uh, autonomy. And this was... Uh, it took, it took actually months to do this. It's, it looks simple, but uh, it's touching such a, such a critical uh, element of the spacecraft that uh, you, you have to do it very carefully. So we were very tense when we flew. And one thing we did was um, not extremely well visible, but basically with the lander, which you saw is mounted on the back of the spacecraft, the lander was activated and its cameras took a picture of the Backside of the solar array. So this is actually a, a picture of Rosetta flying over Mars. It's like watching from a from a window of an aircraft uh, the surface of Mars at a distance of about thousand kilometers. This one, and so this is the proof that we did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Earth swing by number two in November 2007 with some nice pictures. This is a true picture with the lights in the northern hemisphere and the sun on the other side. This time the closest approach was in the dark. And, in fact, um, in fact, I think our, our Science Operations Center people did this and uh, recognized various, various uh, lights, including ESTEC, which is our technology center in, uh, in Holland. Yeah? Um, another nice picture of the Moon we took in that occasion. Um, what I didn't explain, in, in doing all these uh, five uh, tours around uh, the Sun, we crossed twice the main asteroid belt. The main asteroid belt, for people who are not familiar with the solar system, is, uh, is a belt, at distance between Mars and Jupiter from the sun, where there's a lot of, uh, of uh, asteroids and there are many are known and observed from Earth. And uh, so with small corrections of our trajectory, we have to go through it anyway, we could fly by some of these. And this was the first, this was actually taken as a test uh, for another flyby that I will show you later. This is, again, a uh, four or five kilometers uh, um, large object. It's called uh, asteroid Steins. And we flew by with a very large uh, relative velocity, so nothing to do with the comet operations we're going to do. But it was a nice test. Um, then we came back to Earth, another of these nice pictures, uh, with the, um, You see the 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 next thing we did after the flyby of the Earth, we crossed again the asteroid uh, belt and we, we wanted to meet, uh, to fly by an asteroid called Lutetia. And this happened on the 10th of July, 2010. Uh, much more impressive. Um, it was a big asteroid of 130 kilometers size. Ob- in fact, at that time, it was the largest object ever flown by by a spacecraft. Um, and uh, we wanted to fly very precisely at a distance of about 3,500 kilometers. Now, what is interesting, and I'm going to spend a few minutes on this uh, view graph, um, is that with our radiometric data, so with the signal that we get from the, from the spacecraft, we can measure the position and the velocity of the spacecraft very, very accurately with techniques that I'm not going to go in detail about. But the problem still remains, if you're flying by one of these objects like an asteroid, the position and velocity of the asteroid is not that well known. I mean, you have uh, errors of uh, the order of 100 kilometers. So, uh, normally you don't care, you, you, you care where your spacecraft is. But when you're flying at uh, 15 kilometers per second, uh, close to, a, to an object of this kind, you better make sure you know where it is in order not to crash on it. Uh, so the technique, and this was the first time we used it in Europe, that we used to refine our knowledge of the position of the, of, the, of the asteroid relative to the spacecraft, was what we call optical navigation. Now, maybe not very visible in those pictures, but you see some fixed stars moving, and in the center of the circle you see, if you have good eyes, you see a little, a little dot. The little dot was the asteroid. And if you take... Ah, there is more visible, very good. If you take... Uh, um, several pictures at a distance of a few hours or a few days, uh, you see the movement of the asteroid compared to the stars. You can reduce the error of your knowledge dramatically. And these plots show what we've done in that case. We started from, uh, you see this uh, large uh, black circle. This was in the inaccuracy of our knowledge using purely radiometric data for the spacecraft. Then we took some pictures and dramatically the inaccuracy goes down. You see the the, um, orange circle, then the violet circle. Then we did the manoeuvre because our target was where this uh, green dot is. And then we did other measurements. Then we expand that, you see it here. Doing more and more measurements, eventually we flew by with an an error of less than a kilometre. And this was uh, pretty good. Now, optical navigation uh, was a test here but now is extremely important for what we're doing in these days, because we need to know exactly where the comet is, we are observing it every day, and we direct every two weeks our trajectory so that we get at the right time in the right place. Um, One interesting thing was that the spacecraft was turning automatically. So the spacecraft had a camera that uh, observed the asteroid and then followed it automatically. uh, this was also a big challenge for us, because with Stein's, with the previous one, the camera had not worked so well. We were lucky, we were still observing it, but here we didn't want to, to miss it. So we worked a lot in recalibrating this camera, and eventually worked very nicely. And uh, uh, <laughs> one interesting thing in operations, uh, it's always unexpected, the camera was tracking the asteroid. This is a true picture of the asteroid. and. Uh, And uh, we were very happy of how solid this tracking was. And then suddenly, the camera lost tracking because it detected an an, uh, external object. And we knew there was no external object there. So we thought the camera was broken. But in fact, the external object was this little dot you see there. And if you have good eyes, you recognize it. It was Saturn. Saturn in the background. Of course, we didn't expect it. Saturn is very far away. Almost almost uh, ruined our flyby because it was, it was trying to deflect, deflect the, the camera. Fortunately, it was a very short appearance and then everything went back to nominal. But at least as a price from our uh, well a large number of gray hair in those moments, as a price we get this very nice picture. Um, so that's a, a film of the pictures. Uh, there were many more taken uh, that we did in flying by. And as you see, uh, this, this world is incredible, the longest uh, uh, on one side is 130 kilometers. You can imagine the size of these valleys there and uh, makes you feel like visiting it. Um, and by turning, automatically, you could actually follow the full flyby from the approach, almost uh, with the sun on the back, so very nicely illuminated, and then when you turn, around and you fly by and you turn, you see, you go and see the, the dark side of it. So again, this was a secondary science objective. We still have a prime one, which is get to the comet. And now I come to it. Uh, but before getting to the comet, we had another challenge. I said, we fly with solar arrays. Nobody's done it before. We've broken all records. Wonderful. But we got to a point in this very large distance to the sun, this is again the, the Rosetta orbit, um, where we couldn't keep all uh, systems active. This was planned. This was crazy, in my opinion. We always uh, fought against it, but we had no alternative. We, we had all sorts of ideas to try and, uh, and avoid it, but eventually when we came there, we were convinced it was the only way to get to this comet with solar arrays. We had to switch it off. We had to switch off most of the spacecraft and keep it off for two and a half years. Now, to an operator like me, it's, it's horrible, yeah? Suddenly, you stay two and a half years out of contact with your spacecraft. And I, I just... I, it took me years to accept this idea. Eventually, we did it. What we did, uh, we spun up the spacecraft with solar arrays pointing more or less in the direction of the Sun. Uh, this is the direction they were pointing. Then the spacecraft gradually moved, keeping, when you spin it, of course, it keeps the inertial direction, keeping the directions of the the solar rays more or less in the direction of the sun, and then when it came out, we we had an automatic timer that would switch it on. Um, It was a very tense moment. I'm sure that some of you have uh, uh, witnessed this. Uh, Some of you have even worked on Rosetta, and uh, uh, this was on the 20th of January this year. Um, And, uh, okay, this this is all we got. That's the the signal we got from the spacecraft at wake up. We've been there. We predicted that it would be between uh, um, 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. And uh, and the spacecraft took almost the full window. Uh, It it appeared about at 7.20, 7.19. And this is the explosion of joy. This is the operations manager. And uh, uh, it was really a very, very nice moment. All we got was this peak, but this peak, meant to us that the spacecraft was not only there, but it was in a very good shape. Because in order to give this peak, the spacecraft had to go through autonomously a lot of operations. It had to activate all its systems, or most of them. It had to uh, use the thrusters to slow down the spin. It had to move the antenna, so we knew the thrusters were working, the computers were working, the antenna was working, the transmitter was working. And uh, the star trackers were working because, in order to know where the Earth was, it had to switch on the star trackers and check where the stars were so that it recognized its position. So, this little thing here to us meant thousands of things, and all these things were good news. And this was that's why this is what makes this moment very, very exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm still a bit moved about it. Yeah? Um, now, but this was the start. We had this long trip behind us almost 10 years, but all this trip would mean nothing if we don't get at the target. And now uh, the real difficult job uh, starts. And uh, so where we are now, you see now this orbit many times, we are on this side and we're getting close uh, to the, to the uh, comet. And that's another view, is the distances that we have from the Sun and from the Earth. So the, the yellow curve shows the evolution of the distance to the Sun. You see, we come from very, very far away, 5.3 AU, as I said, you have to multiply by 150 million kilometers, so about 800 800 million. Um, Today, we are here on the green line. So we are a bit below the four astronomical units, 600 million kilometers. It means that we can activate all our instruments, and we've done it. So the instruments on board have been activated, the lander has been activated. They are measuring, and of course, they're taking pictures of the comet. Um, From the Earth, when we came out of the hibernation, is the end of this gray part, we were very far away. You see, almost, well, more than 5.5 astronomical units. Um, We are now coming close, because the Earth is rotating around the Sun, so it's actually coming towards us. So we are at a very nice distance of below three astronomical units. This means that our signal, that travels at the speed of light, uh, takes uh, about 24 minutes now to reach the spacecraft. And for us, this is uh, comfortable. Um, The landing will occur when we reach the 3 AU distance from the Sun, so 450 million kilometres. This is important for the lander. But we want to do it as soon as possible, because later the comet may get more active. So on one side, we we have to wait until the 3 AU, also, we don't have very much time to characterize the comet. I'll show you what we're going to do. But on the other side, we have to, um, we have to land uh, as soon as possible. Now, the comet, this is the prediction of where it would be in the, in the sky seen by Rosetta. The, all the yellow dots are, or, or circles are stars. And uh, um, this is where we saw it for the first time. Maybe more visible there. You see in the green circle, you see the the comet, and there you have a globular cluster, a very nice uh, stars. But well, we found it there. And recently, this is a film you find also on Internet, we see developing a coma. If you look at the last uh, two pictures of this film, the comet is not anymore a dot, but it's already developed a coma. And this would be frightening enough, but what, I, what we recently heard from our scientists is that the comet has disappeared. So the recent pictures, so this was a, a burst, uh, which is... Not good news. <laughs> it means that this can happen again. And this is, we are still at very large distances from the sun. So we thought the thing would be a bit less active. But okay, it's a bit early to be concerned, but uh, I would have liked to see just a, a clean dot. And what I see there is there is some activity around it. We have to fly in that, in that uh, dust uh, cloud. Another view. Uh, now you see, the, you see the, the coma and the stars very nice picture, but just gives you the impression that this is not a star, it's really (coughs) our target. Now what we're doing is these braking maneuvers that I uh, explained to you before. Uh, We did one, two, three. We do them every two weeks. And these two, the last two, were very critical. 291 meters per second. Um, Almost 300 meters per second is a a big braking maneuver. It, It lasted seven and a half hours. And then we did 271. The next one, next Wednesday, is this one down here, 91 meters per second. And as you see, this is the direction of our velocity, and we push in the other direction. We're just slowing down. Then we will do more, including correction of the trajectory. And then we get there on the 6th of August. And then what we do is we orbit the comet. But don't think about the typical Keplerian orbits, very nice circles or ellipses. Uh, what we do is these things here. So on the 6th of August, we get at about 100 kilometers distance, and then we start going on hyperbolic arcs. Like this is what we call the 100-kilometer pyramid. Then we do a 50-kilometer pyramid, and then we can observe the comet from various directions and characterize it. We have to learn what this thing is uh, at the surface, but not only the surface, its behavior, the rotation, the, the gravitation, and... Uh, the, 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 the dust and gas uh, flows. We do a, a, a model and we have already tried our, uh, our modeling tools from a simulated shape. We have reconstructed this one here. And uh, eventually we will also have to decide landmarks so that we can do an accurate navigation. So there's a lot of work to be done in the periods between August and September to learn what this object is in order to learn how to fly around it. Um, Then we go closer, because eventually we have to do this landing and we have to do it, as I said, as soon as possible. So, uh, coming from the 50-kilometer pyramid you saw before, we first enter a sort of uh, half elliptical orbit at uh, 30 kilometers distance in September. Then we change the plane, but we stay about at the same distance one week later. Uh, Then on the 24th of September, we start going down to 20 kilometers. You see each of these half ellip- ellipses are about a week, so a very slow relative velocity. And then on the 28th of September, we are on a full 20 kilometer orbit, and then we will go down from there. So seen from the top, uh, on the 8th of October, we we'll go down to a 20 times 10, and possibly on the 15th, we we'll go to the 10 kilometer circular. We have to get that close in order to do a proper delivery of the lander. Now, look at this animation. Uh, it shows what I've just explained, but it gives you a bit more a feeling. So first, we, we do these triangles. Yeah? This is not what you're used in space flight. Yeah? We can do it because the comet has basically no gravity uh, or hardly any gravity. Um, so you see, we are far away from the comet, about 100 kilometers. We've done the 100 kilometer pyramid. Now we do the 30, sorry, the 50 kilometer pyramid, getting closer. In the meantime, the the nucleus uh, rotates below us and then uh, we start the semi keplerian orbit here. There's the transfer. And uh, hopefully, the gravity... These are very important for us to sense the gravity and determine what gravity we have there. From the ones out there, we can't sense the gravity. But they are safer. So in the beginning we have to play it safe, and uh, yeah. So this then looks like more uh, more of an orbit, although we can do these these nice changes very easily because there's not much energy involved. These are small maneuvers, and then we get really close to it for the landing. Well, I guess the scale is not that accurate, but it gives you an idea. Hopefully we don't hit it when we are there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, The landing the landing maneuver will be on one of these orbits, trying to be on the plane where where the rotation axis is, or more or less. So the comet rotates like this, and then we do a maneuver. We just go on a on a perpendicular trajectory, flyby trajectory, and then we we push away the lander very gently so that it lands around 9 o'clock local time of the comet, so in the morning, and then the thing rotates, and from up, from up there, we can observe it in full light. That's the, that's the idea. Of course, things can change uh, if the comet is uh, not behaving the way that we hope, but uh, that's the plan at the moment. And uh, that's the lander file, just to give you... Few words about it you see there's a lot of instrument the solar rays are the ones the solar panels uh, or solar cells are the blue ones it has a lot of instrumentation also that gets exposed they can plant into the into the surface it has two nice harpoons um, that are used to uh, uh, anchor it to the surface otherwise when it lands it would it may bounce back and it has three legs that also <coughs> anchor themselves themselves with uh, with uh, these screws And uh, I hope the animation works. Um, Shows basically what the landing maneuver will be. And don't think of a landing like on Mars with rockets and so on. What we do, we just push gently away the lander from the body, just very gently. Gives enough separation velocity so that it falls. In the meantime, it automatically opens uh, these legs. and uh, and then it it very gently, hopefully, goes down to the surface. We're talking about, again, depending on the characteristic of the comet, it can take several hours, this this trip. When it hits the surface, it anchors itself, shoots the harpoons, and then it's ready to do the the scientific uh, observations. Um, So, I mentioned May to July, we do the maneuvers. This is what we're doing now. August to October is this period with the pyramids to characterize the comet and then the lower orbits. November we land. But after that, we have a full mission to do. We have the famous one and a half year, okay, including a couple of months here now, uh, where we orbit the comet. And what what do we do there? Uh, Our scientists would have liked to do these nice things, so lots of uh, Keplerian orbits around it at different distances and so on. But we have to remember this famous three AU limit, Uh, uh, the astronomers tell us, they call it the ice uh, limit, something like this. Um, Basically, closer than three astronomical units from the sun, 450 million kilometers, comets tend to be quite active. So the the predicted um, velocity of the gas and the dust that will impact the spacecraft increases very dramatically. And remember, our spacecraft has 64 square meter solar arrays. We will have to be very careful there. Our orbits will become unstable. Our spacecraft will be also attitude-wise disturbed. So as soon as we've landed, we, we will have to be extremely cautious in getting close to the comet and gradually maybe getting far away, which is not a problem from the science, but from the operations, it's very recommendable. So we will, try, we will fly hyperbolic arcs at various distances and eventually our orbits will look like something like this. So flybys, short flybys at various distances. But again, this is all in the plans. Um, We will know more in August when we get there. Um, I'm approaching the end, it's okay. This uh, is my tribute to all the people. I'm telling you all these stories, but of course there's a lot of people around uh, I've worked with these people for so many years, and they grew. They were uh, very young people in the beginning. Now they got children, and so on. They start getting <laughs> gray hair, uh, so they start uh, looking closer to me. But uh, or they lose it, as you can see. But uh, many of them have been associated with a, with the a mission for many, many years. Uh, maybe not as many as myself, but uh, this is a mission that is uh, is the mission of your life. So for us, it's. Uh, also another achievement this team and uh, this is it i think completely thank you